Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, April 14th. We begin with another edition of Ask the Doctor with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. As always, Dr. Jenny takes the time to answer coronavirus questions as sent in by you, the listener. Do you know where your pension dollars are being invested? We speak with the CEO of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board on the process and methods the organization uses to plan the investments and how conventional energy companies are incorporated in today's eco-focused environment. It's National Gardening Day. We get the dirt on the trends ahead for the 2021 garden season with the assistant editor of The Garden Guide, Ben Kilbride. And finally, get ready to feel really old. <laughs> we speak with music guru Alan Cross about how the definition surrounding classic rock has changed. We get the lowdown on why some of your favorite bands from high school and college are now being defined as classic. 8.12 on Mornings with Sue and Andy, and since the beginning of the pandemic, we've been asking our expert to answer your COVID-related questions. So if you have one, feel free to text it in at 403-974-8255. He has not been stumped yet. I don't think today will be the day either. Joining us now is Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Jenny. Good morning to you, Dr. Jenny. Good morning. Well, you know, thank you so much for taking the time. And as we prefaced before, some questions might be repeats, but they're on people's minds. Here's one for you. Uh, Do we know, here's a fresh one, do we know how effective the Pfizer vaccine is against the South African variant? That's a great question. So with the other two variants, the UK and the Brazilian variant, it is extremely effective. So almost no loss of protection compared to the original strain. The South African variant's a little different. It, there, there is some reduced protection, but that is against infection itself. It does still seem to show some good protection against severe disease. So the chances are uh, of, of acquiring the virus perhaps go up if, if it's a South African variant, but there's still really good protection of uh, uh, for preventing hospitalization, intensive care, or worse. So it's still good disease protection. Okay, good to know. Uh, before we get to the next one, I just want to read this text because I think this is important that we say this to you. Uh, no question, says this texter. I just want to give kudos to Dr. Craig Janney, a calm voice of reason and a font of good, sound, scientific information. Here, here, totally agree with that texter. So there, a little, a little golf clap for you, Dr. Janney. Uh, here's one uh, from a person, though, who is not so happy with all of us. It wants someone to share the truth frustrating they say is hearing the false hope of vaccinations the shot doesn't cover the variants i work in healthcare got my vaccinations we're still wearing ppe and still need boosters is that correct do you think there's a few things in there to maybe go through. One is, you know, the, the shots are still actually quite effective, and we see that. So where uh, these shots have been deployed in the world with tens of millions of, of doses, we see measurable reduction, significant reduction in hospitalizations and death. And even here in Canada, where we've been vaccinating older Canadians, the death rate in this population has dropped significantly. So it's good news. We are seeing real-world protection. Overall numbers in the hospital, we're, we're not seeing the, the big impact yet because we still have the, you know, the minority of Canadians protected. So as we roll that out, we're going to see increased protection, better numbers across the country. I, I fully understand the, the, the frustration still having to PPE and physically distance, but again, that's because the vast majority of Canadians do not have that protection yet. We need to get everybody vaccinated. We can, and then we will be able to safely get rid of some of these, these additional measures. And with regards to boosters, yeah, we, we may need them. Right now, the, the two big variants in Canada, the B117 and the P1, are very very well covered by the vaccines we have. 
Um, but those those boosters are already in development, and, and the nice thing about those is uh, we don't have to go back through these extended clinical trials. Mm-hmm. We know how these vaccines are made, we know they work, and we will be able to, in coming years, be essentially the same as a, a flu shot, where once or, or once every year or two we'll just get a top-up that will refresh our immune system to the current strain. So hopefully we're not going to see any future uh, massive lockdowns or anything of that nature due to variants. We'll we'll be able to keep pace with it. All right, this one here is kind of a situational question. Is there any benefit or risk if you receive the first dose after being exposed to COVID but before showing symptoms? So we've not seen any problems with that. We've not necessarily measured any benefit either. So we don't think we're getting a post-exposure protection that we can give for some other viruses like hepatitis, that if you've been exposed, we still encourage you to get vaccinated even after exposure. So I I haven't seen evidence that says it helps, and I definitely haven't seen evidence to say it's a problem. So it's just one of those perhaps bad timing, but, but we're not enhancing the vaccine, but we're also not causing any additional risk or problems if you were exposed uh, at the time of vaccination. Dr. Jenny, is there an update on using different vaccines? For example, shot number one, Moderna, shot number two, Pfizer. So unfortunately, no update yet. Uh, there is an active clinical trial happening in the UK that was started even before we, we had reasons not to use AstraZeneca. And that is because there is some evidence from, from other experiments that suggest mixing the two types can actually give better immunity. Um, we don't know if these two vaccines work well together, and there is a clinical trial with patients enrolled in the UK, hopefully results in the, in the coming weeks from that trial. Dr. Jenny, we have to take a quick commercial break. Can you hang on for two more minutes? Sure thing. 819 on Mornings with Sue and Andy, and more of your questions surrounding the coronavirus and the pandemic with Dr. Craig Jenny, infectious disease specialist. This one here, Dr. Jenny, is an opinion uh, that the, this uh, texter wants from you. Uh, obviously, you can put in your professional know-how as well. Here we go. Do you think it is responsible for the government and Dr. Hinshaw to even allude to the fact that large events such as stamping or festivals have a prayer of happening in the next three to four months with very clear th- uh, threats yesterday of us shutting down in the near future and a federal vaccine rollout, which is still vastly inadequate. How is the idea of these events happening uh, even a possibility? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I, I think we have to, you know, keep hoping we can get to that level of protection. And that is going to be contingent on a few things. As pointed out, you know, we need vaccines from, from Ottawa. Um, the good news is that does appear to be picking up pace, which, you know, is going to help. Uh, we also need uh, citizens to, to sign up for the vaccines that are available. We have heard that there have been uh, open slots that are not filled, and, and, you know, this is concerning. And we really need to get to that level of protection. You know, July is a, is a little ways off, and we are seeing now, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of doses being administered every week. So there is a, a possibility we can get to that point, uh, but we do need a few things to change, including increased access to vaccine and, you know, people taking the available slots when they are offered. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't get there, uh, yeah, things like Stampede probably are, are not going to be able to be conducted safely, the, at least the way we remember them. Fair enough. Okay, here's one for you. We are seniors in our mid-70s. My husband had his first and second shot. I've only had my first shot, now waiting four months for the second one. How can I be sure, waiting so long between these shots, that I'm still going to get the protection that Pfizer promises after being fully vaccinated within their specific timeline? Yes, and again, I definitely understand this concern. I've heard it from a lot of people. Um, 
you know, we are watching this data in real time. And the difference is, is Pfizer was not going to do a four-month gap between shots as part of a clinical trial. If they did that, we would still be probably right. tying up the phase three trial at the moment. So we're basing this on real-world evidence of how these vaccines were used in Europe, how the, the immunity is, is staying uh, high in places like Quebec, which started doing this first. And we're making our decisions based on that. So we have very good real-world evidence that for the vast majority of people, we can extend that dose. If we see any signal, and NASI's been very clear on this, if we see any signal about groups of patients where that four months is not a good idea, they will update their recommendations. So right now we're, we're basing those recommendations on real-world data that suggests it's safe to do and we still get really good protection. Are young people more susceptible to a blood clotting? Why do they recommend people below age 55 not get certain vaccines? So that's, again, based on the real-world evidence. So this is something that was not found in clinical trials because it is so rare. We're, we are looking right now about one event per million doses administered, and, and no clinical trial is enrolling multiple millions of patients. So we're learning from real-world data, and it turns out the people that have had the clots are, are all under the age of 50. So we've set this uh, threshold of 55, which is even safer than what we've seen in the real world, and just you know making sure that we are uh, protecting people to the absolute best of our ability and not bringing any undue risk in at all. Dr. Jenny, I know this is something, you know, people send us in links to YouTube videos, etc. But are any of the hospitalizations, including people who have had vaccinations? So, you know, you know what I'm asking you. Are there yeah. big issues coming out of it? So I haven't seen any granular data, so detailed data as to if anybody in the hospital right now is vaccinated. We do know that through a couple long-term care facilities that there were people that were vaccinated that did test positive, but that tended to happen within that two weeks of vaccine, so people were not fully protected. We also know from real-world data that, you know, the vaccine really is still only offering 80, maybe 90% protection against infection, which means 20% of people that are vaccinated could still catch the virus. But we do see remarkable protection against hospitalization, so well above 90%. Um, you know, anybody in the hospital now with the vaccine, perhaps, but if they are, they'd be a very tiny number. Dr. Jenny, you've done it again. Un, uh, <laughs> unstumpable. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Take care. You too. This is Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. 709, it's mornings with Sue and Andy, and uh, navigating the political minefield around energy investments has become complex, not just in Canada, but globally. We're joined now by John Graham, the new CEO of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, to explain their approach. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Andy. Now, uh, John, uh, thank you for spending time with us here. And um, understanding that the CPPIB uh, has an approach that the entire energy ecosystem should be looked at. What do you mean by entire energy ecosystem? Yeah, we um, we've been investing in energy for 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 quite a while, really, since the inception of the fund, and we really have a view that we should be investing across the entire energy spectrum that we should be investing in conventional energy, renewable energy, carbon capture, hydrogen. And in fact, just last week, we announced the creation of our newest investment group, our sustainable energy group, where we took investment professionals from across the fund, brought them together with the view that the world's going through a transition. The energy market's going through a transition. 
and some of the leaders in the conventional space today are going to be leaders through the transition. So let's take a holistic approach and make sure we invest through that transition. And I think as we've been pretty clear, we, we don't pursue a path of blanket divestment, but pursue a path of engagement with all players in the energy space. I think that's important for us to hear, particularly in Alberta, John, that, you know, there's no pulling away from oil and gas in the traditional sense, but but looking forward at what is coming down the pipe, so to speak. Correct. Correct. Good morning, Sue. And and this is really why we felt it was important to bring together all of our professionals. It's a very dynamic space and and climate change and the energy transition. This is a, a complex problem. And it's going to require complex science, complex engineering. And as an investor, as an organization that's here to drive value for our beneficiaries, we see a tremendous investment opportunity across the entire spectrum. I mean, these are the type of situations we like to engage on. John, let's break down a little bit more about the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. Who are the members made up of and, and how are they chosen? Well, we are the, we essentially manage the surplus funds of the Canada Pension Plan. So our customers, our beneficiaries are 20 million Canadians, including 3 million beneficiaries in the province of Alberta. So we are here to help secure the financial security of Canadians by driving strong investment performance and really investing on behalf of all Canadians that contribute to the Canada Pension Plan. Is there a relationship then between, I mean, I guess I'm wondering how you decide then where you're going to plant this money. Do you, do you talk to these companies? Do you just look into, you know, what they've accomplished or, or just sort of believe that they may be what is going to be the wave of the future? I've been with the organization for 13 years. And through that time, we've built out really a global in my opinion, very sophisticated investment organization. And we have the ability to do public investments, private investments, real estate, infrastructure. You know, sometimes we help seed companies. Some examples in Alberta would be Wolf Midstream, um, which is a, a great example of a firm that has a lot of expertise in conventional energy and midstream and now is really active in operating and developing the Alberta carbon trunk line we operate at arm's length from government. We really are a investment organization with a fiduciary duty to, to Canadians and Canadians' pension. I'm wondering, you know, not just a current day, but, you know, past several months and looking ahead, the CPPIB, has the pandemic had an influence on, on your outlook in, in those sorts of investments and those sorts of sectors you look at that you may not have looked at, you know, 12 months ago or a year and a half ago? The pandemic has been, uh, as with everybody, it's, it's, it's been a challenge. And, you know, first I'd say that as an organization, our, the safety of our employees is first and foremost. And, and as, as a leader in the organization, we, we've really tried to support our employees, especially those with young families, through the pandemic. And I'm very proud to say that the organization, our portfolio, has just proven to be very resilient very resilient through the pandemic, thanks to our risk management process, thanks to the diversification we have in the portfolio. And we've built capabilities. We've built the ability to invest in lots of different sectors, lots of different countries around the world. And that diversification has really provided some resilience. You know, we will report our results at the end of May, but the fund continues to do well and it continues to be sound.
John, quick question from a texter just came in to your guest from the CPP board. As a Canadian pension plan administrator, I'm curious to know what percentage of your investments are in Canada versus outside of our country. Yes, currently we have around 15% of our assets in Canada, which is, is overweight Canada on a global GDP basis. And on a dollar basis, we're just, you know, just around half a trillion Canadian dollars of assets under management. So we do have a, a lot of money at work in Canada. And we continue to look at investment opportunities across the globe and across Canada. Wow. Interesting. And uh, thank you for sharing more information about the organization and what you folks do, John. We appreciate it. Thank you for your time. That is John Graham, the new CEO of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. And it's very interesting because you know, I, know, I know as an employee, and I've, I've been in this uh, seat with you, Sue, since, uh, well, a year and a half ago, uh, since I left my former job. And when I say left, I kicked out the door. <laughs> uh, but I uh, never took a hard look at my uh, pension. Uh, and, and, I mean, you, you join a new company, you inquire about those pensions, mm-hmm. and then you start to think about investments. And a lot of these give you the opportunity to, to choose your directive, whether you're doing it on your own or you have a financial planner with you. And I, I encourage you to dig deep because you might be signed up with something that, and if you believe strongly in our, our number one industry in the province, still energy, mm-hmm. uh, make sure that the, the folks that are handling your bucks um, are investing in those sectors, though. But, I, you know, I do think it's important because this is not something that, you know, I normally, my head doesn't wrap around numbers and investments very well. Yeah. So I, I I rely very much so on the people who do that for a living. And, and but it, I think it, you're right. It is, it's good to question them. Yes, they're the experts for sure. But if it's something that is important to you and you yeah. want to know more about then, especially if it's, you know, Canadian investments or oil and gas, whatever it might be, you should talk to your, your investment person and, and make sure that everybody's sort of on the same page as to what you want yeah no i think that yeah having some knowledge getting involved maybe it's all about the um, almighty dollar maybe you want to make eight ten twelve sixteen percent on your and i get that you got to do what's what do your best for your family. but then you know the same way that you, you would have been ethical about uh, investing in companies that have quote unquote uh, unethical energy practices you might want to say well no 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 i'm on this team just because this huge conglomerate doesn't agree I got to, you know, uh, seek out those areas that I do support. You have to, you know, align with your own morals. Yep. 909 on Mornings with Sue and Andy. And yes, spring has sprung. And with the arrival of spring comes the new garden guide from the editors. uh, We all know and love the old Farmer's Almanac. Joining us is the assistant editor of the garden guide, Ben Kilbride. Good morning to you, Ben. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. And we just uh, came to our attention. Our producer, Maureen, put a note in yeah. that said that today is National Gardening Day, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it's definitely a good day to, I mean, maybe not start planting things just <laughs> yet, but you can plant stuff inside and get those seeds started. I was going to ask you about that because I know people have been itching. And uh, here in Calgary, we can still get below the zero mark through the overnight period. And if, if you really know gardeners, and I know more than a few out there, I used to ask the question, when are you going to get going? And when do you start thinking about it? It's a 365-day-a-year thing, Ben, isn't it, no matter what climate you live in? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that's actually kind of a great thing because it means that, you know, by the time you're finished harvesting in the fall, you're already starting to plan your next garden and making it, you know, bigger and better. Are we a little different here in Alberta, Ben, in terms of when we are able to start planting? Because, you know, people think, oh, May long weekend. It's going to be, well, it often snows here. So are we delayed in terms of planting? 
So that uh, that really depends. You know, it, it's it kind of uh, hard to tell these days. Um, so we do have uh, for your frost date, uh, last frost date, for 30% chance of that uh, being the last frost date, we have the end of May um, around that weekend that you're talking about. But, you know, it's really up in the air. So, like, you, you it, the, the climate keeps changing and being a little bit more unpredictable. But I would say, you know, near the end of May, beginning of June is when you can start planting things that um, are not frost resistant. What about the past uh, 13 months or so, Ben? And, and gardeners have always found a great stress relief, and it's outside, so we talk about COVID-19 and the pandemic, the perfect activity. Have you noticed the increase in intent, uh, attention and a want to start the, the passion and the hobby of gardening? Have you seen an increase? Completely, yeah. We have, uh, I think, um, at the beginning of last spring, uh, we doubled the amount of uh, traffic on our website um, and the amount of interest that people were having. Uh, we had so many questions about uh, different, you know, gardening uh, with different plants and everything. And I think it's wonderful because, uh, you know, it is one of the, the best things for your mental health and physical health to get out there, get your hands in the dirt, and, uh, you know, start planning some things. So I, I think it's wonderful. Truly, and we can involve the whole family. For, you know, the youngest kids can still get involved in, in planting and growing and understand where things came from. So, uh, you know, I, I know at the beginning of the pandemic, it was all about planting vegetables. What are we planting in 2021? So vegetables, of course, are always going to be something that people are going to be planting because you can eat it at the end, which is the best. Um, but I think uh, some some of the more popular things that are happening right now are um, people planting native plants. So, you know, flowers that are native to your region uh, to help with uh, beneficial insects and uh, native bees to, to help them um, have a place to um, for habitat and to invite them into your garden. Um, and I think that's really great because, you know, they're, they're struggling a lot of the time uh, uh, these days and they really need that help. You, you say that gardening is truly for everyone, and that's one of the focuses of the Garden Guide. Uh, I'm wondering, we've seen people with elaborate gardens who may have spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars on them and, and the hours to match. Uh, but on a budget, what, what's a good thing to, to start with if I want to get into gardening, have some success, and uh, really just enjoy that growing aspect? So uh, I would recommend, depending on the amount of space that you have in, you know, your, on your land, or if you don't have like an actual backyard, if you just have like a deck, um, either doing a, um, a small raised bed, um, which is a really great way of, um, you know, condensing your attention and um, amount of effort into one small space, and uh, you can get a lot more out of that. You know, so so start small if you're starting off, um, because it can get out of hand really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had that experience myself. Um, and then if you don't have any land, um, but you just have like a deck, uh, that gets some good sun, um, doing a few small pots of some herbs and some like vining vegetables, which, uh, you know, like, uh, peas or tomatoes or something like that, um, are also a really great way to start. And Ben, I'm seeing, you know, another option too, as I'm flipping through the pages of the garden guide is vertical gardening, which has really become a big deal over the past couple of years, particularly if you do have a small space. But even if you've got a bigger backyard, it's a great option, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and it's pretty cool because sometimes you already have a fence or a wall that's like just right there and you can just uh, start training up your vines or you can, um, you know, hang some trellis systems or, uh, you know, some hooks to, to um, hang some pots or some grow bags. Um, and it looks really cool. That's, that's what the, the fun part is, mm-hmm. is. It looks cool and you get more space in a smaller um, you know, square footage.
I'm wondering, Ben, you know, you mentioned the change in the increased interest during the pandemic. Have we seen a decrease in the age of gardeners over the past year or maybe even a couple of years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was happening already, but I think that's definitely increased. I think um, people in their uh, mid to late 20s are definitely a lot more um, involved in gardening. I'm in that age group, so I mean, I was already I was already interested in it, but um, we definitely are getting a lot more questions from people in like apartments, you know, trying to do stuff off of their decks. And uh, um, I think that's also really good because, uh, you know, gardening, like you said at the beginning, it, it is for everyone and it, and it should be for everyone because, I mean, um, I think it's really cool to know where your, your food uh, is grown and to actually grow it yourself is kind of empowering. I like that uh, eco-gardening is something you're talking about in the guide as well as, you know, raised beds, how that you can make them yourself. So there are ways to plant without having to spend a whole lot of money that you can kind of, you know, maybe use your own hands and build it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, gardening does not have to be, uh, you know, hundreds of dollars spent to, to get something. You can just get a bag of dirt and cut, you know, couple of cans uh, or, or um, you know, put some holes in the bottom of some cans and you can grow some, some plants out of that. Um, gardening and plants in nature in general, you know, it grows without our help um, most of the time. Uh, I have a compost pile and sometimes, you know, some like random seeds that I threw in there last year will start sprouting and it'll grow an entire gardening garden without me having done anything. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it does not have to be hard or expensive. Let's talk about the fact that the old farmer's almanac, we, we know that very well, and uh, it's historic. And then the gardening guy, you throw that into the mix as well. Uh, but you have, uh, you know, moved into the 21st century big time. Let's talk about the digital versions. I mean, you don't even have to pick up the physical copy anymore, do you? That's completely correct. Yeah, you can get the uh, digital copy of the garden guide um, online at our website, almanac.com. Um, and, uh, I think that's really helpful for a lot of people who might not have like a lot of shelf space or, you know, uh, just want to be able to flip through something uh, a little bit more easily. Um, but you can get both the physical and the digital copy if you want to do that too. And so much in it, just flipping through it, Ben, we couldn't even touch on everything. It's not possible. Recipes, contests, it's all in there and it is all available for folks right now. So, uh, best way for us to find the gardening guide, do we, is there a website where we can kind of download it? Do we have to pay for it? Um, yes. Yeah, so you can go to almanac.com slash where to find and it'll give you um, all of the websites and physical locations in your area um, where you can find the garden guide. Perfect. Ben, happy uh, happy National Gardening Day to you. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Glad to be here. That is Ben Kilbride, Assistant Editor of The Garden Guide. Now, and is your favorite music cool or dated? Well, to find out whether you're hot or not, we are joined this morning by legendary broadcaster and musicologist Alan Cross. Good morning, Alan. Oh, good morning. Oh, dear. This is going to be hard. Uh-oh. What, are we, we're not, <laughs> right? Is that what you're going to tell us? Well... There was a, a very good British writer by the name of Simon Reynolds who once wrote, uh, every generation has a biological right to believe that the music of their youth is the greatest music of all time. Makes sense. And that is that period between going into high school and then getting out into the real world sometime in your early 20s. We have more time to devote to music during that period of our lives than we will have at any other uh, the problem is that music stays a certain uh, age, and and we we get older, <laughs> and there comes a time where we look back on the music of our youth and go, 
uh, wait a second, that music is 30, 35, 40 years old. That must mean I'm 30, 35, <laughs> 40 years older. So this is what's happening with Generation X right now. They're looking back on the groundbreaking music of the 1990s, grunge, the alternative nation, all that stuff that came out that wiped away hair metal and the dinosaur classic rock artists. Uh, they're now finding themselves in the position of seeing their music turn into, well, the new version of classic rock. Yeah, but, you know, Alan, that's where I'm going to stop you because, you know, I want to go back to one of the comments you made earlier. I am uh, that uh, Gen X. And, and so so as far as I'm concerned, that music was the greatest. And like you say, you can <laughs> draw parallels. But I'm here to say, and you can tell me if I'm just making excuses, maybe like our parents and grandparents made. When I listen to what my teens are listening to at this point, to me, it doesn't have the depth. These artists have like pop-ups. They have collabs. They don't put out full albums and they certainly can't perform as live as my favorite groups like the Stone Temple Pilots from the 90s. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and get off my lawn. Oh, so I'm old, so I just make <laughs> different excuses. Go. Okay. Yep, you nailed <laughs> them, Alan. Here, let, <laughs> let's, let's just, I mean, there is nothing wrong with this. It, it is the circle of life. It is, to everything, there is a season. Um, <laughs> we just, uh, you know, generators just have to come to terms with the fact that, that their songs, the songs of their youth are now classics. I mean, <sighs> give you an example. Um, smells Like Teen Spirit. The defining song of that age will turn 30 years old on August the 27th. Wow. I know. uh, The Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, will turn 30 years old in September. Pearl Jam's 10 album will turn 30 years old. Uh, R.E.M.'s Out of Time album. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, these these albums. Let's see. Okay, here's something that'll really bring it home. Dave Grohl was the drummer in, in Nirvana. And he was the guy playing on Smells Like Teen Spirit. Nirvana blows up after Kurt Cobain dies and he forms the Foo Fighters. Mm -hmm. The Foo Fighters started in 1995. They have been around long enough, and Dave has been around long enough, that he is going to publish his memoir (laughs) in October. Uh, thanks for making us feel like senior citizens here. So, <laughs> so Alan, what what does that mean for what we grew up knowing as classic rock? What do we call that now? What do, what do we call that generation of music? That's really interesting because it is slipping into the world of oldies. <gasps> uh, the, euph- the euphemism a lot of, uh, I mean, classic rock radio stations will stay around as long as advertisers want to advertise to the audience that they attract. Uh, it's just that they're getting, you know, beyond that magical age of 54 if you're older than 54, a lot of advertisers really don't care about you. Um, and whether or not we they can attract new audiences, which is really tough, because let, let, let's look at something. If, if if the music of the 90s is still sounds really, 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 really good. I mean, they're great songs. They production values are great. Songwriting is great. Performances are great. So a kid today who's 20 years old listening to music from 1991, I mean, it it doesn't matter. I mean, the music sounds, a lot of that music could be released today and still be hits. If you were a 20-year-old kid in 1991 and listening to music 30 years old, that means you would be listening to Percy Faith and a theme theme from a summer place. (laughs) But the difference here is that music, especially rock music, underwent a tremendous evolution between 61 and 91. I mean, 61's pre-Beatles, right? Uh, you got 
better guitars, better instruments, better amplifiers, uh, effects pedals, better recording studios, synthesizers, and all these things that allowed music to, to really, really evolve in that 30-year period. Since 1991, we haven't had those oh. earth-shaking things in rock. I mean, it's happened in hip hop and in and, and EDM and others, but we haven't had those those that that massive amount of evolution in the last thirty years. So, something that's thirty years old now yeah. still sounds pretty good. It's, yeah, right? the quality is there for sure. Uh, we're gonna have to leave it there for time, Alan. But uh, you know, yeah, uh, Sue said, thank you for making us feel ancient. <laughs> um, and uh, wow, this is a great conversation to have with friends. Absolutely, thank you so much, Alan. Oh, you're very welcome. That is Alan Cross, of course, a broadcaster with Q107 in Toronto and a global news commentator.